All right, so those of us that are alive and remain, if you would please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I was going to tell him it's okay. I'll probably still be going when he gets back. <laughs> One of the most brutal weapons of war landmine, especially the anti personnel landmine. They come in two basic varieties. There's the kind that try to kill you, and there's the kind that try to maim you. And as they're often intermixed, it's hard to tell which one's going to come up out of the ground if you happen to step on it. The problem with a minefield is usually you have no idea that it's there until somebody steps on one. When that happens, everybody stops, nobody moves, and you'll have a person who takes the lead and if they don't have one of the magnetic minesweepers then the old-fashioned way is you take out your combat knife and you poke it into the ground at an angle so that you can try to find the mine without setting it off and as you go through and identify where the mines are then you set up lines you mark a path and by marking that path, you're establishing where it is safe to step. And you work all the way through until you get to the other side of the minefield. Now, there is something that is observable about anybody who is on their hands and knees, sticking a knife into the ground, trying to find a landmine before he sets it off and it blows his face off. You'll notice that they, are no, they don't have earbuds in their ears, they're not listening to hip-hop, they're not dancing, they are focused, they are concentrating everything that they have on what is right in front of them so that they don't end up getting blown up. Inside that path is safe. Outside that path is not. And you can believe that as people start walking on that path, not only are they paying attention to where their feet go, they're trying to put their foot inside the footprint that the last guy left, right? Because if it didn't go off for him, it shouldn't go off for me. And so they're safe and there is not safe. Now not all line mines are buried. When the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in the early 1980s, they dropped tens of thousands of small plastic mines that are just several inches long. They were brightly colored, and they looked like toys. And because they looked like toys, little kids would pick them up. Now, those, mi those mines had less than two ounces of explosive material so they wouldn't kill you but it's enough to blow off your hand or your foot and so there are thousands of Afghan kids now Afghan adults walking around with a stump on a leg or a stump on an arm lifelong impediment lifelong impairment because they picked up the wrong thing now, if landmines had existed in the first century, the Apostle Paul probably would have used them as an example. Because the Christian life, in many ways, is like walking in a minefield. There are safe lanes. And outside those safe lanes, there are dangers. And the Apostle Paul, as he is writing to his protege, Timothy, in the pastorals, 
is warning him time and time and time again of the two primary landmines that Timothy is going to encounter. One is false teachers. The other is false doctrine. Either one of those are enough to be excessively hazardous to a Christian. And so he warns them time and time again. Now you're in 1 Timothy 4. Keep your finger there. And let's just take a little quick surf ride. Flick a couple pages to the right. And let's look at Titus chapter 1. Titus 1, beginning in verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Now go back to the left. Oh, no, let's go to the right. We'll do one more. Titus chapter 3. Uh, we'll start in verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Now let's go to the left, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Drop down to verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they, that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Turn the page and go to chapter 6. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine of conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare 
and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Drop down to verse 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Turn the page if you need to, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Beginning in verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Drop down to verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps... God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. Chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And you could even finish off if you begin at verse 10 and go through verse 17. And we didn't do an exhaustive list of all the admonitions that Paul wrote to Timothy. And so it is through and through the book. The danger for you, Timothy, is false teachers, false doctrine. The danger for your congregation, Timothy, is false teachers and false doctrine. So the sermon today is navigating minefields so that we don't go astray, to avoid the danger of going astray. And we're going to look at one verse. Our text this morning is going to be 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. And there are three commands in this verse. You'll find that there's two actual commands, but one of them's got a double object, so it counts for three. There's three commands, and there's a promised outcome. That's our four points for today. So three commands, a promised outcome. So point number one, pay close attention to yourself. Here's the text. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to your word now. We pray that you would enlighten our minds, that we would be able to understand what it is that you're saying. 
that we would take it to heart, that where is needed, we would repent. But most of all, Lord, that we would hear and that we would obey. Help us to understand your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. Pay close attention to yourself. Now, pay close attention means just that. It's not complicated. It's focused. It's intentional. It is concentrated. Picture yourself as having a knife in a minefield. That focused attention as you are looking to see when you strike something that goes, ah, there's something here that I need to avoid. That's the kind of focused attention that Paul is getting at here. Pay close attention, and not just to anything. Pay close attention to yourself. Now, what he's getting out here, at here is, Timothy, you need to pay mind to your personal holiness. You are not to be someone who preaches a message that says, do as I say, not as I do. In fact, we notice that with the qualifications for being a pastor, don't we? Pastors are to possess certain characteristics, certain character elements. And the reason for doing that is so that they are actually in the practice of doing what it is that God says to do. They don't just hear the word and thereby deceive themselves. They actually do it. That is so that they can be an example. If you want to come up with a synonym for leadership, probably the best synonym for leadership is influence. The ability to exert influence on another and in the spiritual sense, you want that influence to be for good. You want to help somebody along. You want to have them know and understand the truth so that they can do the truth. And the, one of the best ways that you can do that is you model it in front of them. You don't just say it with your mouth. You model it with your life. Pay close attention is in the present active imperative. Now, imperatives are commands, right? So it's a command. The present indicative means that it is something that is continuing. So the best way to be put this would be pay close attention and keep on paying close attention. This doesn't stop. It's not a one-time wonder. This is something that is to be a consistent attitude and, and, a, and a perspective in your life. And Paul doesn't leave Timothy without an example of what personal holiness is. Go up a few verses to verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. So, Timothy, first, it's what you say, and how you say it. It's not just the words. It's the word choice. It's the tone that you use. When we studied the pastorals in Sunday school um, some weeks ago, months ago, one of the things that came out constantly was how the pastor is to oppose, he, he is to oppose false doctrine, he's to oppose false teachers, but he's to do it in a gentle way. He is to reason. He is to be kind. We just read that passage here a few minutes ago in 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. It's not about having a fight, getting in an argument, and winning the argument. He's to be kind to all. He's to be able to teach. He is to be patient when wrong, in gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. And so it's not about winning the fight, it's about winning the soul. It's about winning the person who is in opposition. And so, Timothy, what you say and how you say it is one way that you demonstrate holiness. Your words are apples of gold in settings of silver. You have an idea as to what the issue is, and you consider what you say and how you want to do it so that you can take this person who is in opposition to the truth and lead them 
if perhaps God will grant them repentance to the point where they see what the truth is and repent and turn to the truth. It's not just speech. It's also your conduct. Now, conduct is going to include what you do, and it's going to include the attitude with which you do it. We, can all, we all know what it is, right? Most of, us, most of us have kids. And we are, you know, if we can't just remember what we were like when we were that age. Johnny, sit down. And Johnny is sitting, but he's got the look on his face that says what? I'm sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm standing up, right? And so it's not just conduct. It is the attitude behind the conduct. Timothy, you're to demonstrate personal holiness in love. Now, we're actually going to talk about this in a little bit further. This is not just um, this is not just emotional love. This is not just, uh, you know, I, I, this is love in the sense that it's love for God and then love for others. It is devotion to God. You demonstrate, Timothy, how people are to love God by how you do it, by how you think of him by how you speak of him, by how often you think of him and speak of him. You demonstrate that to others. You show others what it is to love each other. You show what it is to give preference to one another. You show what it is to put the interests of another ahead of yours. You show what it is to sacrifice your needs for the needs of another when you can fill them. You demonstrate that for them so that they can see that. Timothy, you demonstrate holiness by your faith. You demonstrate trust in God when you encounter adversity and you don't become anxious. You demonstrate faith when you encounter uncertainty and you are not dominated by fear. You demonstrate trust in God by believing that he is in fact sovereign, but by acting on that belief. It's like the people, the group, having a prayer meeting, praying for rain, right? And one guy shows up with an umbrella. The idea here is, is that if when you believe that God is in fact sovereign, that he is all good, that he is all knowing, that he is all wise, that he's accomplishing all things according to the purpose of his own will, that he causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, and you can keep going on and adding on more verses and more verses here, you demonstrate that you actually believe that when you practice it. You aren't given to anxiety. You aren't given to worry. You aren't giving to whining. You aren't given to fear. All of those things, when that is your reaction to the uncertain or the re or reaction to something that comes to be a surprise to you, that's not the fruit of the Spirit. And so, Timothy, you will demonstrate those things to your congregation when you have faith when that is your response to uncertainty or adversity or opposition. No anxiety, no fear, and you demonstrate that by example. Timothy, you demonstrate your post-personal holiness by purity. You don't have a wandering eye. You don't have, you, you know what, Timothy? You have integrity doesn't matter if somebody's watching or not. You know what's right, and you do what's right. And you treasure God's holiness. Why is it that we seem to struggle with this concept of personal holiness? You know, a little bit ago, 
we sang, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And praise God, that's true. That is a wonderful reality. And yet are we prone because we know that we're forgiven? Are we prone then to not be so concerned about consequences of sin? God has never allowed me to enjoy the full consequences of any sin I've ever committed. Not one. Not one. Adam didn't murder Eve. He didn't rape her. He didn't commit one of those sins that we considered to be so, so evil. They ate something they weren't supposed to eat. And that was enough to condemn them to death. And all of mankind with them. Do we really pay attention to the consequences of sin? Flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's a story that unfortunately is very familiar. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is about David and Bathsheba. Chapter 12 is about David and Nathan. Nathan comes to David, tells him a story. David reacts to that story. Chapter 12, verse 7. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. As you begin to read the following chapters in 2 Samuel, that's where you find the story of Amnon and Tamar. That's where you find Absalom's rebellion. Those things were the direct consequence of David's sin. Now, there's no question that because David was the king, he's a very public person, and what he did was going to become very, very known. And so because he had a wide audience, the consequences were steep. The baby died. Many died. You know, a lot of people died in Absalom's rebellion. People that were with Absalom were killed, Absalom himself was. And so there were huge consequences to others because of what David did. Now there's no question 
that there are huge consequences when a pastor sins. When you have a pastor who is unfaithful to his wife, that brings incredible shame to the name of Christ. And so people who are more public, the ripples of those actions go further than they might for others. Do you consider the consequences, parents, on your children when you sin? Grandparents, do you consider the consequences on your grandchildren when you sin? God is gracious. God is forgiving. And praise him for that. But we cannot presume upon him. There's a term for that. It's called licentiousness. And in fact, if you look at Jude 4, it talks about ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. What were the terms that were used to describe somebody who felt the freedom to sin because there's forgiveness? ungodly, denying Christ. If you find yourself going down the path of, it's okay if I do this, all I gotta do is confess and repent and I'll be forgiven. That's a dangerous path. In fact, you're off the path and your foot is hovering above something that's not gonna be pleasant. We'll talk about parents and kids here a little more here when we get to point four. So pay close attention to yourself. Second point, pay close attention to your teaching. Now, I realize that y'all are thinking, wait a minute, Paul's writing to Timothy. Timothy is a pastor, and he's writing to Timothy as a pastor. And you are absolutely correct. That is absolutely true. And if pastors were the only people who spoke into the lives of other people, then we wouldn't have anything to worry about. But that's not true. What is teaching? Teaching, you can substitute two other words for it. You can substitute the word doctrine, or you can substitute the word truth. This is God's revealed truth. So how is it that you pay close attention to your teaching? Well, Timothy... First, you have a personal study of God's word. You don't rely on the work of others. You do your own mining. You do your own digging, your own studying. You listen to godly preachers. You use godly resources. If you're not sure about a particular resource, about a particular book, about a particular preacher, Ask one of your pastors, hey, is this guy accurate? Does he cut it straight? Is he telling the truth? We've already read 2 Timothy 2.15, right? An unashamed worker who doesn't need to be, he's confident in his work. Uh, the, rightly dividing the word of truth, I know you know this. Um, that word comes from Paul's leather work. He was a tent maker. Rightly dividing the word of truth means cutting it straight so that I've got a piece here and I've got a piece here and I can put them together and join them together and they're going to fit because they're cut right. It's the same thing with studying God's word. Are you accurately determining what the meaning is? There is one meaning to scripture. One. And it's the meaning that God attached to it. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what the church thinks. What matters is what God determined the meaning to be. That is the meaning of the text. You cut it straight when you accurately understand what the meaning of the text is. There can be a whole bunch of, of applications to it. There's one meaning. Go back to 2 Timothy, if you haven't turned back there already. 
Let's go to chapter, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses that you've probably got memorized. I'll start them. Y'all could probably finish them. Here's where you go to determine what's true. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed, literally. God-spoken. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. When you want to talk about godly living, there is no aspect of godly living that God's word doesn't cover. It's profitable for teaching. Here's what's right. Here's what's true. It's profitable for reproof. Here's how you violated it. Here's how you messed up. It's profitable for correction. Here's how you make it right. Here's how you get back on the right path. It's profitable for training in righteousness. Here's how you don't mess up again. And so it covers everything when it comes to godly living. And here's where we're going to have to stop and park for a moment. This morning, in the Sunday school class in here, we looked at the letter to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And there is something in that letter. In fact, you know what? Let's go there. Revelation chapter 2. Just turn over there. That way you can see it yourself. Revelation 2, let's start in verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Drop down to verse 6. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. Now remember that Paul was warning Timothy about these dangers of false teachers and false doctrine, right? Time and time and time again in the two letters that he wrote to Timothy. What Revelation, since Revelation is written about 25 years later, after Paul wrote the two letters to Timothy, Timothy's ministry was successful. The church at Ephesus doesn't have a problem with false teachers. They recognize when they're false and they don't listen to them. And they reject false doctrine. They are orthodox in their understanding of the truth. They work hard. That word toil is to labor to the point of exhaustion. They persevere. They aren't one-shot wonders. They are consistently, they've got their nose to the grindstone in doing their work for the kingdom. And so here you have people who are working. They're not growing weary and well-doing. They're persevering. They're toiling. They're orthodox in their, in their understanding of truth. You would think that God would be really, really happy with these people, right? Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first or else, I don't know about you, I don't want to be on the other side of God when God says or else. Or else, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. It is not enough to be doctrinally orthodox. You cannot have an ac just and accurate understanding of God's truth. Remember how Paul told Timothy, you are to demonstrate your personal holiness by love? 
Timothy, you need to model in front of your people what it is to love God with your whole heart and with your whole mind and with your whole strength. You need to demonstrate that to them. There were seven churches, by the way, in the book of Revelation. And some of them, when you, when you think of some of those churches, when you hear the word Laodicea, was God happy with Laodicea? No, he wasn't happy with Laodicea. But do you know that Ephesus was the only one of the seven churches where God threatened to take away their lampstand? The only one. And doctrinally, they were right up there at the top. Now, please understand, I am not saying that doctrine is not important. What I am saying is that doctrine alone cannot be alone. It has to be accompanied, and it should be accompanied, by devotion. It should be accompanied by adoration. It should be accompanied by worship from a heart that is overflowing with gratitude. A heart that is cold toward God is a heart that does not know gratitude. It is a heart that does not know contentment. And so again, pay close attention to your teaching. But also remember all of the doctrine, including how we are to respond to God himself. So pay close attention to yourself. Pay close attention to your teaching. Again, point three, persevere in these things. So Paul doesn't leave it to chance that Timothy somehow has forgotten his Greek syntax where it's, you know, pay close attention and keep on paying close attention. So Paul throws in point three here, you persevere, you keep on, you stay on this. It's a lifelong pursuit. It's not a flash in the pan. And the word here for perseverance is the word from which we get patience. It's the backpacking patience. So the idea of hupomone is hupo under mone to remain. So uh, if you're backpacking, let's face it, if your pack isn't on your back and your feet are not going alternately ahead of each other, you're not making any progress, are you? Hupomone is the idea of keeping the shoulder under the load so that you're moving and you're making progress. It's translated patience. It's translated endurance. The idea of perseverance assumes something, doesn't it? Perseverance assumes opposition. It assumes difficulty. Who has to persevere in prosperity? I don't think I've ever met anybody who has a problem persevering in prosperity. All of us have difficulty pers persevering, though, when we're talking about affliction, right? When we're talking about opposition. And so again, it's the backpacking term, keeping under the load, shoulder under the pack. Those are the three commands. Pay close attention to your teaching. Pay close attention to your personal holiness, not in that order, and persevere in these things. And then there's a promised outcome. And I really went back and forth as to whether or not we ought to cover this first, just so that people wouldn't want to check out because, hey, this is just applicable to pastors. So the promised outcome. Timothy, if you pay close attention to your holy, to yourself, to your personal holiness, and you pay close attention to your teaching, and you persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, the word for ensure salvation here, those are two words being used to translate one. And the word that is being translated is sozo, 
It's used 104 times in the New Testament. It is translated ensure salvation exactly once. And frankly, it's not a good translation. Because what does it give the idea of when we read the idea that if you do this and this and this, you will ensure salvation for yourself? Now, that sure sounds like something that I do that is leading to that. And, and, the, and the, the other part is even more significant, frankly. You'll ensure salvation for those who hear you. Now, if I'm a parent, I'm jumping on that like white on rice, right? As a parent, what is one of the things that I want above anything else on the, on the, world, on the planet? I want my kids in heaven. And boy, I tell you what, if there was something that I could do that would ensure that, sign me up every day of the week, twice on Sunday. I'm all over that. The problem is we know that's not true, right? We have to take in the whole counsel of God. That is not something that is in my ability. And so then what's the problem? Well, the problem is understanding the word. Sozo, it can be translated salvation, and it can mean redemption. It can mean that. But very often the word is used to describe being healed of a disease. So when you see Jesus healing somebody and they were made well, they were sozoed. It can also mean to deliver from peril. That is also being sozoed. The term is used of Jesus in John 12, 17. What shall I say to this? Father, save me from this hour. It is for this hour that I've come. Now, did Jesus need redemption? I don't think so. So what does it mean? What's he referring to? The word is very commonly used to deliver from danger, to rescue from danger. And in fact, even salvation can be viewed that way, can't it? I've been set free from the wrath of God. Well, I've been rescued from the wrath of God, right? So the idea here is if you maintain personal holiness, what's the danger? That's the question. What's the danger? Is there a danger here that Timothy needs to be rescued from? Yeah, there is. What is it? Paul was talking about it over and over and over again. You need to be protected from false teachers, and you need to be protected from false doctrine. You need to know, Timothy, how to stay between the lines that mark out where it's safe to walk so that you avoid the landmines. Timothy, if you pay attention, pay close attention to your personal holiness, then you won't fall off the log when it comes to living a godly life. You won't fall prey to false teachers. If you pay close attention to your teaching, knowing what the truth is and how to rightly divide God's word, you won't fall prey to false teaching. When you see it, you'll be able to recognize it. And if you recognize it, you'll know, I don't step there. And so the idea here is, Timothy, if you maintain your holiness and you maintain your accurate doctrine, your true understanding what is true, then you will save yourself from the dangers of falling prey to a false teacher or to false doctrine. You're going to be delivered from the danger of wandering astray. So, how does this apply to each one of us in here. 
as a pastor, I have those who hear me. Hopefully today, that's you. Because understand that we're talking about hearing in the biblical sense of hearing, which means not just hearing, but obeying. It's hearing and doing. You know, as, as James says in James 1, you know, being a doer of the word and not a hearer only in deceiving yourself. Pastors absolutely have those who hear them. Pastors are not the only ones who have those who hear them. Do you teach a Sunday school class? Do you teach children's church? Then you have those who hear you. Bible study leaders, they have those who hear them. Are you discipling somebody? You have somebody who hears you. Are you a parent? You have somebody who hears you. Are you a grandparent? You have those who hear you. If you're fortunate to live long enough and be a great-great-grandparent, you have those who hear you. In fact, about the only people here right now in this room who don't, do you have friends? You have those who hear you. I hope. About the only people here that don't have somebody who hears them left to go to children's church about 45 minutes ago. The rest of us, we all fall into this. And so, leadership, again, is about influence. It's about setting an example. Not just by word, by action. It encompasses every phase of life, every area of life. Those of you who have been here for a while, I bet you you can look around the room and you can find somebody here and think of a circumstance that they were in where faith was exhibited. We've sat in hospital rooms and seen faith exhibited, demonstrated. We've been, there's been, look, we're hands-on enough with each other that we know what it is when somebody is suffering and they suffer right. They suffer well. And how that glorifies God because God is at work in them. God's grace is always on display. For some reason, it's just especially on display in the midst of trouble. We have opportunity where we can bring praise and honor to the God who bought us by acting as he says we should. By believing what's true and acting on it. We have opportunity to bring praise to him. At the same time, we have opportunity to bring shame upon him. If we know what is right, but we don't do it. When instead of demonstrating faith, we demonstrate fear or cowardice 
when the earth shakes a little bit, and we're shaking worse than the earth is because I'm all tied up in knots by worry. How's this going to affect this? How's this going to affect this? You know, I'm told when I was very young, my dad and my granddad came in to read me a story to put me to sleep. The story was about Henny Penny and the sky falling. And I'm told that they read it, they were laughing so hard in reading it. Because on the one hand, you look at it and you go, that's ridiculous, isn't it? And yet, how many of us have been Henny Penny? How many of us have been so caught up in worry that when God acted and delivered us, it took a while to figure out that he'd actually done it. Pay close attention to your personal holiness. I don't know about you, there are some things that aren't as important to me as others. Speed limits aren't necessarily as important as other things. Now, I know why you're laughing, but can I tell you something? Do you remember how detailed the Old Testament law was? You will bring this offering, not something else. You will bring this, and you will bring it at this time, and you will prepare it in this way. Very detailed. And what were the people expected to do? They were expected to obey it in every single one of those details, weren't they? It's wrong for me to treat a command lightly because I don't happen to agree with it or because I happen to be running late or because my foot is just heavy right now and it's going to push further. Now, I'm picking on an easy one with speed limit, right? What happens when I choose not to put my wife's interest ahead of my own? That's a command, too. What are the consequences if I don't guard my eyes as I should? Pay close attention to your personal holiness. The landmine might not kill you, but it can sure make you the spiritual equivalent of stumpy. There are lifelong consequences to sin. So pay close attention to your personal holiness. Pay close attention to your teaching. Know what's right. Know what's true. Obey what is true. Persevere. Not two days a week. Not four days a week. It's all of them. And if you do that, you'll avoid the, man, the landmines of false teachers and false doctrine. And you'll be able to guide others who listen to you along that same path. Let's pray while the music team's coming up. Father, how good you are to give us your word to give us your Holy Spirit, to guide us into all truth. Thank you for giving us what we need to know. 
in order that we may know you are right, that we may worship you are right, that we may obey you as we ought. Thank you that as, we, as your children, you give us the ability to do what is right. We're no longer slaves to Satan. We're slaves to righteousness. Father, I pray that you would help us to be those who are firmly entrenched in truth. But at the same time, Lord, that we would not be those who are passionless, those who hold to a form of truth, but we serve you only out of duty with no adoration, with no worship. I pray, Lord, that as we, as we see who you are, how you have rescued us, and how you have, all the, the incredible things that you have blessed us with, that our hearts would overflow with gratitude. Gratitude that can only be expressed to you in obedience, in singing, in joy, in contentment. Father, work in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. To present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding great joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Have a